Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I'm close. I'm so close. When I throw this extra large knife switch, my latest creation will come alive. A cow with the brain of a man. A man cow, Igor. It's Gregor. Do you like cow man or man cow? I don't really have an opinion, Dr. Wolfenstein, but could I talk to you about... Where's the beaker? I need a beaker full of green liquid with dry ice at the bottom. What for? Because it looks cool. Because I'm a mad scientist, and mad scientists always have those beakers. Doctor, I know you're busy, but I've been meaning to bring up my... Not now. Can't you see? This is the moment. One more adjustment to the induction coil, and my cowman will rise. Dr. Wolfenstein... I'm always trying to talk to you about this, and it's always the wrong time. Yesterday was the giant mosquito with the head of a real estate agent. Poor bugger. Did you get rid of the body yet? The thing is, you aren't even paying me minimum wage. Right now, that's eight seventy an hour here in Connecticut, but you... Money? Who cares about money? We're not in it for that, Calgore. We're in it for the intoxication of scientific discovery. You're in it for that. I'm trying to pay off my student loans. Hey, you get to live for free in this castle. It's a storage unit. Anyway, I live with my parents. I'm not even sure you noticed okay, my coming. Okay, 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 okay. Just write down what you're looking for, and I'll take it up later when I'm meeting with my mysterious patron whose money and assistance only lead to the inevitable final confrontation where half the lab gets destroyed. Now, can we please animate the cowman? Why? I mean, what does this even accomplish, having a human brain and a cow? Why bother? Because, uh, because, because, you know what, Smugger? I totally forgot why I'm doing this experiment, and it's your fault. You got me all sidetracked with this minimum wage stuff, but I'll tell you one thing. My man-cow will do whatever I tell him to do, and he won't be asking for any eight seventy an hour. Hey, wait, I could sell a whole bunch of them to the fast food industry, but would cows be willing to work at Burger King? Maybe only KFC. Well, I figure that out. Here's the guy who burned his Walmart uniform in protest, Colin McEnroe. That's right. We're talking about the minimum wage today. And in fact, uh, President Obama will be in just a little while uh, in New Britain at Central Connecticut State University for uh, a rally in support of higher minimum wages. He will be surrounded by uh, governors, uh, not only from our state, but from neighboring states as well. We thought that was a good time to actually talk about uh, the minimum wage debate here in America. To do that, we have experts, uh, uh, two different kinds of experts, the kinds of experts who study minimum wage and who who look at policy. Uh, We also have the kinds of experts who make minimum wage. Uh, so uh, with us right now is Jim Stotter, our go-to economist. He's a professor who teaches economics at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Uh, also with us, Victor Burgos. He's a minimum wage worker at Burger King. You can also hear in the background, that's his little daughter, Isabella, who's also joining us today. Because when you make minimum wage, you can't necessarily, you know, just go hire a sitter. Uh, Chris D'Alessandro is a voiceover a talent with an MBA, but she works various jobs, one of which is for a minimum wage. As we go along, we'll be talking also on the phone uh, to a, a bunch of other people who make minimum wage and people who do study the phenomenon and study the debate. Um, as we go along, too, we welcome your phone calls, 860-275-7266. 
860-275-7266. You know, Jim Stoddard, uh, James Carville used to say that he was trying to find a one-armed economist so that uh, the guy couldn't say, on the other hand. But I'm actually going to ask you uh, to do do that, to say on the other hand. There's a debate here about minimum wage. Um, There's, uh, I mean, I think most people sort of understand the issue of wage inequality. A lot of people want to address it. Uh, The debate has to do with what happens if we do uh, raise the minimum wage. Do we get the consequences we want? or unintended consequences. So lay that out for us a little bit. Okay. Um, There is a a debate among economists, um, but uh, something to make reference to is a a recent uh, CBO, Congressional Budget Office, study, which is cited by both conservative and not-so-conservative economists. Um, And the conservative economists look mostly at the simple model which is, you know, when the price of something goes up, the demand for it goes down, and that includes the price of labor in most situations. Um, labor economists um, and and people who look at the at the data more um, tend to see small, very very small effects of some people losing their jobs, but um, the the overall uh, idea from the evidence from the CBO report is about uh, 50 more times people are helped by the minimum wage than people who uh, might lose their job. They estimate about a half a million people um, could lose their job, and that's a, um, about 3% of the n- numbers of people who would be helped by well, it. Well, uh, you know, I didn't read the CBO study so much as I read a summary of it. It right. seemed a little inconclusive and a little bit fuzzy, too. I think it said it could be less than half a million uh, jobs lost. It could be as many as a million it's jobs lost. It's always fuzzy. That's the, that's the nature of s- statistical <coughs> estimates. And you could, uh, you could say that there's about an 80% chance that the loss will be less than a million people, about a 97% chance that the loss will be less than um, a million and a half. Um, but it's also, there's also some possibility that there's, that there's gain. Uh, they, they look at about 64 different studies, uh, empirical studies, and they're all centered around very, very small effects. Um, on balance, slightly negative, but some, sometimes positive for reasons we can get into. So one of the questions that we, we, we get into immediately is how do you address in- income inequality? One, of them, one way to do that is to raise the minimum wage. And, and we'll talk as we go along today about the kind of um, ripple effect that that might have. Uh, another argument that's making the rounds right now is uh, you can target it better with something called the in- Earned Income Tax Credit, uh, which basically delivers relief through the pipeline of the government as opposed to the pipeline of the business world, uh, but delivers relief to low-income workers, to the working poor. Um, you know, it's sort of interesting, too, Jim, because it, there's a little bit of reverse of the typical uh, political polarity on this in the sense that Republicans seem to like the income in, earned income tax credit, which is a government instrument right now, better than they like the minimum wage. Yeah, I'm not too sure about how, uh, how honestly the people who are arguing for it um, like it. it. You know, last time I looked, uh, you know, most of the conservative Republicans are against policies which would require down the road either an increase in, um, uh, in taxes or an increase in debt um, because this would be uh, government spending, direct government spending uh, to uh, you know, top up the wages. I, th- I think the earned income tax credit is a, is a good thing, but I think both things are needed. The benefit of the earned income tax credit is it doesn't go 
to people who are not around the poverty line. Um, it goes it goes only to people who can show by their earnings that they're in that area. The whereas minimum wage goes to everybody um, who's who's who is getting the minimum wage. Um, the uh, the the downside is that the minimum wage gives low income workers a f a floor and some bargaining power that they wouldn't otherwise have. You with the earned income tax credit, you can actually get. Um, say, a fall, some of the studies show that you could get a fall in the number of teenagers uh, getting uh, minimum wage because now it's more attractive to hire more, more experienced older people. Um, so, you know, you make, it, you make it more attractive for the people to hire people at the minimum wage jobs. And you're actually, rather than a fall in the number of those people, you can actually get some substitution of people towards those minimum wage jobs. So that's not necessarily a good thing. I mean, another part of it is just to look at the earned income tax credit kind of carves out one sector uh, of, uh, of the wage spectrum and says, we're targeting relief at you. But it doesn't really deal with the overall pipeline, the overall continuum of what people make. I mean, it's unlikely that anybody else will make more money as a result of, uh, right. of the working poor getting more money through EITC. Right. Whereas if, if theoretically, if you deal with a minimum wage, for reasons that we'll explain here, if you raise the minimum wage, you not only benefit the it's the rising tide lifting all boats you not only benefit the minimum wage workers but there's a ripple effect that goes exactly the and the, the CBO study estimates that you get about 16 um, million um, people who are helped directly by the minimum wage and about 8 million who are helped indirectly who are getting low wages but above the minimum they get bumped up by it essentially by labor market effects um, so it's many more people are helped by it than are hurt by it, but but some are hurt. So let's talk to some people kind of living on the front lines of this whole question. Uh, and so Victor Burgos, uh, you're here today. You're a minimum minimum wage worker at Burger King. You're with, here with your lovely daughter <laughs> Isabella. Um, Thank you. What first of all, what would it mean? Actually, before you speak, let's just hear let's hear the first clip from Governor Daniel P. P. Malloy. So he'll be there in New Britain today with President Obama. They're both basically talking about the same thing. They're t talking about the same kind of minimum wage hike. So uh, let's hear Governor Malloy. The rising tide should raise all boats. Uh, the economy is slowly but surely getting better. It's time to share that with the folks who do uh, some of the hardest jobs uh, that America has. Uh, and, uh, and it's a good way to put money back into our economy, into our local economies. I mean, a minimum uh, wage earner is not going to go out and buy a lot of stocks and bonds uh, in New York or London. Uh, they're going to plow that money back into a local economy. All right, so um, that's Daniel Malloy talk, talking about uh, the race. I'm going to give Victor a chance to sort of, he's doing a little, uh, Isabella, a little bit. So I'll go over to you, um, Chris D'Alessandro. You're in a slightly different um, situation. I mean, Correct. You, you do bunches of different jobs. But you've sort of, you've experienced life on the minimum wage front lines. What does it look like to you? Um, I have to be honest and just say that it is, um, it feels a little overbearing. Mm -hmm. Um, I, cause I'm not only putting gas in my vehicle, I'm also putting gas in another vehicle, my mother's vehicle. Mm -hmm. So therefore I do have other responsibilities, even though I don't have my own children, you know, just like in Victor's case. Um, it's very frustrating. I think it would be, I'm, I'm kind of on the fence. It would be a good thing for it to increase to $10 an hour. However, I'm worried about the overall ripple effect later on. You're worried about the ripple effect on jobs, right? Jobs and actually, um, inflation period because once inflation kicks in everybody who is at minimum wage is going to be back at square one again mm -hmm. so, so is that a reasonable i see you nodding over yeah. there 
there, there is go right to the mic there. Though. Yeah, there are inflation effects, um, and the the CBO report and and other good empirical work do try to take account of that. Um, and they reckon that it, one way to say it is, if it was just the increase in the minimum wage from 870 to 1010, which is what we're talking about uh, in two years' time, that's about a 16 percent increase. The actual overall increase that they estimate for the poorest of the poor is, is much less than that. It's about 5 percent. So there, there are countervailing factors like inflation, but, but there, are also, there are also good uh, factors. That is, more money in people's pockets means Correct. they're going to spend more. So there's a mix of factors mm -hmm. there, but on the whole, it's slightly positive, I think. So, Victor Burgos, uh, you're, making, uh, you're working for Burger King. I assume you're making state minimum wage right now there? Yes, eight seventy hour. Yeah, and so what would the increase mean to you? I mean, would it would would it be a substantially good change for you if it went up to say ten ten? Well, it's a good change, but we still fighting for fifteen dollars an hour because mm. ten ten. They only going to help us, but for so long. Mm. Minimum wage went up to eight seventy. I seen they already cutting hours back. So, um, and, and you're sort of, in, in some ways, echoing what was said there before, too, that it, it might help you for a little while. Inflation might also catch up to it. So when you say we, we're fighting for $15 an hour, you're part of a movement that's in favor of collective bargaining, right? Yes. For, for the unionization and collective bargaining right uh, of fast food workers. Tell us about that. Like, I joined because I seen a lot of people in my job, and they were scared to speak up to the manager asking for more more money and um I'm like you know what somebody got to do it so mm -hmm. I like let me join the team and let's see if we can make some type of positive thing come out of this um, our number 860-275-7266 we're happy to hear from your hear your calls here's Emily in Windsor I mean I, you know it's one thing to talk about Walmart about Burger King about uh, about McDonald's it's another thing obviously to talk about small businesses some of which are, are operating on a very thin margin so uh, here's Emily uh, in Windsor with a story like that hi hi how are you go ahead so uh, tell us what your concern is well, I own a really very small bakery in Windsor called Get Baked, and we have just hit our second year in business, and we pay everyone minimum wage right now. My whole family works for free, and my fiancé and I don't get paid at all. We are currently continuing to drain our 401k accounts just so that we can survive in the hopes that soon we will be able to hire people um, past minimum wage and be able to pay them more. Um, I absolutely understand that the minimum wage needs to be higher and people need to earn a living wage. But what I think that people aren't understanding is that if it goes up for small businesses like us, it doesn't just go up on the front there. You know, my unemployment taxes are going up and all sorts of other things are going up. And it's hard for me to justify paying a 16-year-old kid to come in and wash dishes for $10 an hour and then have his parents claim him or her as a dependent and get money back on that. I, I just feel like there should be some sort of a sliding scale for small businesses. It, it feels that they're out to target 
big corporations, but they're not thinking about those small people like us. It's a great point, and I'm so glad that you did call in. And so, Jim, you know, when I look at the sort of the big corporation picture, I do wind up saying to myself, well, Starbucks and Costco and stuff like that, they're able, in fact, to pay their employees something much more resembling a living living wage, often along with benefits. Why can't these other companies do it? But it's harder to direct that at somebody like this, Emily, who's really trying to build something right now. And during that time, she's trying to build something. She's probably not taking very much money out of the business herself, it sounds like, um, right. you know, can she pay ten ten an hour? She doesn't think so. Right. No, I mean, I, I can't argue with her, her experience. I'm sure she's being realistic. One, one thing I'd say that it, it is um, possible to pay teenagers um, less than the, the minimum wage in a training period under the so-called um, FSLA, the uh, Fair Standards for Labor Act, mm. which goes back to the, the Depression. Um, you can pay them something like four fifty an hour for the first... Uh, 90 days, something like that, um, a, a kind of break-in period. So that might, that might address you know, s- some of her concerns. And there's, there are also s- other workers. Actually, in Connecticut, only about, according to the uh, Department of Labor, only about less than 3% of, peop- of all workers get minimum wage. And most of those actually get below the minimum wage. They're restaurant workers who, because they get tips, the uh, the wage for uh, for restaurant workers is very low. It's like it's like two dollars and thirteen cents an hour. That's that's an exact figure. So so there there are some ways that it, that where the minimum wage doesn't uh, isn't as as hard and fast as you would think. But I can't argue with her experience. I'm sure it's true. Chris, uh, you're, uh, you've worked at minimum wage jobs. I saw you nodding though as Emily was talking. Why were you nodding? That was the other thing too. Is um, once again. And where I said I'm on the fence and overall for and against it because of the fact that you have small business owners like Emily out there who are struggling as it is to keep going, keep, you know, everything flowing. And, you know, as she said that, you know, her and her, I believe it was her fiance, they're draining their 401 account to keep afloat. So by forcing somebody like her to go ahead and pay workers, you know, $10 an hour, it's going to be more of a strain and possibly put her out of business. So... It's just it's it's a a frustrating fact that if something like that for her, who is a small business owner, she's trying to do something good, create jobs to, you know, help stimulate the job industry. And yet you're putting her back to square one, you know, and basically, you know, she's going to either sink or swim, possibly sink more than swim. Um, Victor Burgos, maybe give us a sense. I think it's one thing to talk about minimum wage and making minimum wage. It's another thing to, to live on it. Um, give us a sense. What kinds of choices, what kinds of decisions? First of all, how many hours do you get? Because I know a lot of minimum wage workers don't get the hours they want because obviously that triggers a whole bunch of other employer obligations. I get about 25 hours a week. And, um, yeah, we, we do about like 25 hours a week. Sometimes the business be slow, so they cut back our hours. At times I don't work... 16 hours mm. and me traveling back and forth to work i'm burning gas mm-hmm. and um <laughs> it just don't be enough for me i'm sorry and i'm not trying to put anybody underneath the bus but we got families in connecticut who's struggling every day wondering how we're going to feed the kids how we're going to pay our bills <laughs> at times where i gotta pay my bills late mm. 
Absolutely. If you hear Victor go off mic every once in a while, his daughter, Isabella, who's <laughs> very well-behaved and a delightful little girl, is here. And every once in a while, being a good father, he looks over to make sure she hasn't gotten in some kind of trouble. <laughs> um, so, uh, Victor, one of the things that you're part of, or, or you've been approached by, I guess, is this movement Fast Food Forward, right? Uh, this, this idea of collectively organizing, collectively bargaining for better wages. I'm just going to play a little clip. Uh, it's, it turns out sort of the new rock star of this movement uh, is Nequesia Legrand, who appeared on the Colbert Report recently. She's a member of Fast Food Forward. She's discussing organizing strikes for her fellow fast food workers and arguing for increasing the minimum wage here on the Colbert Report. You say you're only working 15 hours a week, right? Right yes, now? Yes, sir. Why not get a second job someplace else and just work there when you're not working at KFC? Because my manager don't give me a set schedule. If I want to have that, that extra income, there's no reason why I should have a second job when these multi-billion dollars, ha multi-billion dollar companies have the money to pay me in the work that I do. Right, I shouldn't right, have to right, have okay. a second job. It's a multi-billion dollar company. It's a multi-billion dollar company, yes, but let's keep in mind That's that the chairman, money, keep in mind the chairman, money for the me now. chairman is only making $11 million this year. <laughs> um, you know, uh, Jim Stoddard, this is sort of an interesting thing. Obviously, the influence of labor is you know, waning all across other sectors of the American economy. Uh, the notion that you could organize uh, the lowest wage workers is something we haven't really heard until recently. And I don't know how realistic it is, and I also don't want to put you on the spot about that exactly. But, okay. but what does it mean to you? What is, how does that look to you? Um, the United States has one of the lowest portion of its uh, workforces organized in, in labor unions of any advanced industrial country. We also, not by coincidence, have one of the most unequal distributions of income. Um, I think there's growing evidence and even a, a growing consensus, um, a, a recent IMF study uh, by the head researcher there, um, that growing um, income inequality makes the entire economy more unstable, makes it more prone to shocks. And th so I think that's one reason to, um, to like things like the earned income tax credit and the um, minimum wage is that they would both uh, move you slightly, not a whole lot, in the direction of, uh, of more equal pay. And so I, I, think it's, I think it's a good thing for um, fast food workers to have, uh, to have more power and to be able to um, organize about their conditions and their and their wages. Uh, let me grab a quick break here. We got a lot of, I won't give out the phone number right now because we have so many calls that have already come in here, people who want to talk about this. I'll give it out anyway. 860-275-7266. You can also tweet us at WNPR Colin, where our tweet master, Greg Hill, is in the house. I think it should be increased because it's not a living wage for most people, and taxpayers pay for it either way, whether we pay in welfare benefits, uh, we're paying for these people on health care, on welfare, so if the minimum wage rises, I'd like the corporations to shoulder some of that burden. I do feel if you work 40 hours a week, you do deserve to get a, a decent wage, um, but I also am a very capitalist person, and I believe in capitalism. Somebody can get, you can pay somebody what they want to. If they want to take that job, great. If they don't want to, then they don't have to take it. The cost of living uh, adjustments just haven't kept up, so we need uh, a minimum wage. We've needed it years ago. I think it should be increased. 
because people, you know, right now people are going through a lot of hardship in this world, and I think if they increase it, it will make it a, you know, a better place, and people will get along better instead of people going out there and doing things they're not supposed to do. I don't think it matters much. I think you can increase the minimum wage for some folks, but if there's a cutback in the number of jobs available due to an increased minimum wage, you're going to end up with a net sum of zero. A few more people will be paid more, but a few other people won't be employed at all. All right, uh, we're back. We're talking about the minimum wage. Uh, we're talking to people who study it and people who live on it. Um, let me grab a few calls here. Well, first of all, we've got uh, another guest here who agreed to come on and talk about a life uh, on minimum wage, and we'll actually get to her in just a second. Uh, here's uh, Donna in New Haven. Hi, Donna. Hi, how you doing? Fine. Uh, I just wanted to make a comment as I'm switching laundry from the washing machine to the dryer um, that I'm I'm working for just a little bit over minimum wage, and I work with... I'm just going to call them young people. They're not worth half of what they're being paid. They don't want to work. They just want to goof around and play. So we're, we're, you're talking about more like high school kids? Uh, no, these, as far as I'm concerned, they're adults. They're over the age of 20. Hmm. Um, you know, they're still living at home, and they may say they're living paycheck to paycheck, but the reality is they're living phone bill to phone bill. You know, I, I, I sympathize with people who are trying to make ends meet, who have families, um, but the reality is if you want to make more money, you've got to improve yourself. You have to get yourself a little bit of an education, and you've got to work hard. The you can't just walk in the door and be in charge. Uh, I'm looking around the studio. There's a lot of body language here. So, Chris, did you want to respond to that? You're, like, holding your head. <laughs> Donna, I love you. <laughs> um, no, I, I have to agree with her on that, too, because I work many different industries, and I um, – different pay rates. I'm normally on call a lot for my jobs. And I go into jobs where I see these younger folks. And she, you know, as she said, she calls them kids. And I believe it's like anybody who's like under the age of like 28. They just I want to say they have no clue. Um, They have no clue on how real life is. Because as she said, they are living with mom and dad. And that's all they live for is to, you know, basically party and pay their phone bills. And so, that's it. So that's one class of minimum wage workers. Uh, Victor, I assume that's not your class of minimum wage worker. Nah. <laughs> Mine's, I say, more like I work, pay bills, and support the kids. Isabella, <laughs> yeah. Um, let me grab a call here. Uh, this is actually a, a guest that we've sort of arranged to talk to you today. This is Daniela Gianfrido, one of the other people who's uh, on minimum wage uh, who agreed to uh, join us today. Uh, Daniela is a uh, minimum wage worker at Stop and Shop. Hi, welcome to the discussion. Hi, how are you? Good. So, so um, yeah, go ahead. I, I totally agree with Donna. Um, I'm actually working part-time at Stop and Shop, um, you just said. Um, we have tons of kids who goof around, you know. Um, I'm a single mom of two children. Um, I attend adult education in Middletown um, to better my life. Excuse me, I'm going to get emotional. Mm-hmm. Um, to better my life for my children, Um Thanks to the Even Start program that I can attend um, adult education because if I wasn't able to attend, um, if I wasn't, if I didn't have childcare for my daughter to attend adult education, I wouldn't be able to to get an education to better my life. Um, I live day by paycheck by paycheck. Um, you know, I try the best I can to be a good mom to my children. Um, I don't get assistance. Um, According, you know, my rent's going up with my new lease. Um, I pay almost a grand a month for a two-bedroom apartment. 
Um, the good thing that I do have, you know, I get some help, you know, for, you know, food stamps and stuff like that. But, you know, it would be a little bit better to, you know, increase the minimum wage. Um, I do get $10 an hour um, at Stop and Shop. But because of the hours and, you know, the time of the year that we're not getting business, my hours are getting cut. And, you know, like Donna said, there's kids that really don't care about working. And the only thing they care about is making the money and, you know, partying and, you know, making sure they have their cell phones paid and, you know, living at home with mom and dad and not having a responsibility. And I'm always that one coworker that's like, you know, give me the hours. I'll take the hours, you know. Um, I'll stay late. Whenever you need me, I'm here, whether it's 1 o'clock in the morning or, you know, I'm always there. And it's, it's kind of a struggle because, like you said before, you know, what about, you know, getting a second job? I would love to have a second job, but there's times where my children need my time. And, you know, going to school and benefiting, you know, my life with my education and to get a better, you know, a better job. Danielle, I'm so glad you called. These are the voices that we want to hear here. And, Thank you. Uh, and f- first of all, congratulations to you for the kind of pluck and energy and determination that you're showing Thank to. You. This just sounds like a very, very difficult juggling act that you're doing right now. So, um, so we you know, obviously we applaud your initiative. And you know, Jim Stodder, there's one thing that keeps coming up here. It came up with Chris, I think, to a certain degree. It certainly came up with Victor, who, by the way, uh, Daniel was nodding when you when you were talking about you're the person who says I'll take the hours, I want the <laughs> extra hours. Uh, right. Victor totally gets that too. But you know, one thing that everybody does, Jim Stodder, when we talk about minimum wage, uh, you find out whatever the hourly rate is that's being quoted, whether it's 7.25 the federal or 8.70 here in Connecticut or 10.10 this possible target or 50. Which uh, which people like fast food forward uh, talk about, and then they multiply it times forty. That's what everybody automatically does. Everybody who's not on minimum wage goes, okay, so what's that times forty hours? Right. But in fact, that's almost never the re- the the sense I'm getting from Victor, from Daniela, from lots of people is that's almost never the reality because obviously that triggers all kinds of other right. employer obligations. Right. Um, the uh, a point about part time workers and uh, and young workers. I'm just I'm just looking at some stats. Most of the um, most teenagers who have jobs are are low wage workers overwhelmingly, but most of the people that are at or near the minimum wage are not teenagers. Um, it's a 88 percent are not teenagers according to uh, labor uh, department stuff. And as far as um, as far as part time, um, uh, it's about um, half and half. That is of of all. Low-wage workers, about half of them work less than 35 hours a week, which is what's considered um, part-time. So it is a and, – and if, but if you're a part-time worker, another way to look at it is if you're a part-time worker, you're much more likely to be a, a low-wage worker than a full-wage worker, if you could call it. So that's sort of the bitter paradox of right, this. Right, right. Um, and, you know, I, I see and it's, it's painful to, to hear about – um, these people who are working hard and these employers who are, are trying to do a good job and they're running up against that, you know, that employability and, and wage limit. I, I mean, look, it's a really blunt instrument, the minimum wage. It's not an ideal instrument. Um, I think it's, it's possible that a better balance with the earned income tax could be worked out. One of the callers mentioned perhaps there could be a sliding scale, or maybe that you know, small employers um, could be could be helped with. A, they would actually be helped with an earned income tax credit because they would be able to hire you know more 
low-wage workers and the workers would get topped up by it. So I, I, th I think it, there's a long way to go to, to make things better. It, there is a real irony that I mean uh, and that I really hadn't turned over in my mind all that much that these people, people like Victor, people like Daniela, who really need the hours, I mean that's what they need, uh, although the, the hours will sometimes bump up against child care considerations and stuff like that, but they really need the hours and they're the people most likely to, least likely to get the, the maximum number of hours. They're just not going to get 40 because right. their employers won't do it. Um, let's grab a call from Michaela. Uh, and because one of the things that was emerging uh, from the conversation with, with Chris and with, uh, with Daniela and some other people is uh, another one solution would be to have a box on the employment form saying, are you a young person who's here to just goof off and pay your cell phones <laughs> or check here or are you actually here for real and you actually uh, need to support your family? And then, then just have a two-tier wage system based on that. Uh, here's Michaela, though. I think she has sort of a different vision of that. Um, yeah, so I'm a young person and I'm 28. And I just want to say that I think it's a gross misgeneralization to say that young people under the age of 28 are kids and that we're not really motivated to work at the same uh, pace or with the same investment as older adults. And I think that this is a disservice to the current generation of young people. And, you know, I've looked at a lot of the research in this area and, um, you know, there's all these, these prevalent theories that, oh, we're narcissistic and we have a failure to launch and we're the boomerang generation. Well, what, are the, what opportunities are available to us to actually have a meaningful work experience? You know, it's, I mean, we're, we're just transitioning into this period. And so we're transitioning into a society that just always talks so negatively about us that why would we take it seriously? I mean, I take it seriously as somebody who's moved up from, you know, minimum wage and really sought out the experiences, gone to school, and put sleep way behind just getting, you know, working as hard as I possibly could. But, I mean, for my generation, we're at a real, we're struggling, man. Thank you. All right, thanks for your call. We, and we did do a show about millennials that kind of explored some of this, although maybe not quite as viscerally as she just put it. One of the real differences, I think, that's, that's happening right now is that um, uh, so there's sort of an equalization going on where people in the past who, who had – um, minimal education, maybe finished high school, maybe hadn't, uh, versus people who had some college or had finished college. Uh, there was much more uh, of a multi-tier system there. But a lot of times these days, it seems like they're, they're kind of coming in on the same level. I mean, everybody's fighting for that same job that's, you know, at or slightly above minimum wage. Chris, what were you going to say? Um, but about Michaela, really quick, um, at least she's also at that teetering point where She's kind of separating herself, which I'm I'm very happy for. But obviously, she sounds like she's educated. She's doing the right thing, you know. And she, she is right. She, there is no opportunity. And Colin, as you said, that like we're all fighting, you know, for that. You know, there's hundreds of candidates fighting for you know one excellent paying job. I mean, I finished my MBA two years ago, and I was all gung ho even six months before I graduated. You know, applying for jobs and you know just. Just putting my you know irons out there, and you know nothing came up because why I was going up against a whole bunch of other people, and it's you know once again back to the you know the frustrating factor. 
All right. So we're talking about that. Thanks very much for that, Chris. Um, uh, let's grab a call. We've got some other guests that uh, are uh, scheduled to come on here. Um, one of the groups that has um, has voiced some opposition anyway to the notion of raising the minimum wage here in Connecticut to 1010 uh, is the Connecticut Business and Industry, Associa Industry Association, CBIA. Here's Bonnie Stewart, Vice President for Government Affairs uh, at CBIA. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, uh, you know, CBIA, my recollection is that, that in years past and some of the other minimum wage debates, I, re I think I remember CBIA staying a little bit neutral on this. And, and am I correct about that and that you've maybe shifted your position a little bit? We have not been as involved in the past on this issue. The bulk of our members uh, do not pay minimum wage, but what we've seen as the minimum wage or the base wage keeps on ha ratcheting up, um, is that it's increasing costs in many factors concerning employers because Connecticut is such a high-cost state. And what we really think the focus should be for um, the people who are now currently low-wage or no-wage workers is to really help them in terms of their skills. One of the biggest problems that Connecticut employers face, particularly manufacturers right now, is we're having a lot of trouble finding people with the skills to fill our jobs. So you've got... People that have college degrees, I understand that, but we have really a shortage of skilled workers in Connecticut, and that's a big, big problem. Connecticut has a lot of manufacturers who cannot find people with basic machine skills, uh, math, science, computer, et cetera, uh, to enter their workforce. And so we have a lot of jobs that are going unfilled that are good wages, good benefits, and we're really hoping that we can focus a lot more on how to get these low-wage workers into jobs that are really careers for them. You know, uh, but, uh, which is all a great point, Bonnie, although, I mean, I'm sitting here with a guy who's uh, sitting here with his toddler on his lap. He looks pretty tired. Uh, he's trying to, uh, to make it right now. Uh, I mean, I'm sure he'd love to have some of that training uh, and, and be on that track that gets him into a higher-paying job that comes with a whole new set of skills. Uh, but that's all tomorrow uh, or tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. It's pie in the sky right now. At the moment, he really needs, he needs to just be able to put food on his table uh, and a coat on his little kid's back. And the stuff that you're talking about short-term doesn't do him any good, right? I would say no, because there are a lot of programs out there that don't require, it's not a four-year degree, it's not a two-year degree even. And if we keep on putting it off, putting it off, and just saying, hike the minimum wage, hike the minimum wage, you're going to run into trouble. You're going to have certain jobs that are available in Connecticut that aren't going to leave because, you know, you need the gas station on the corner, you need the food store, that type of thing. But really, if we're talking about people looking at those as a place to make their career and earn their living um, to feed a family, you're never going to be okay because those are the same places that are selling the food and clothing, and therefore you're just going to hike up the cost of living even more. What we really need to do is to make sure that there's a connect um, and some way to help these individuals find the programs that are out there because there are a lot of programs at no or low cost. My son recently participated in one, came back from the Army, uh, didn't want to go to college, I was able to participate in a program through Crook in the Hartford area. Although, let me just I'm an energy worker. Let me just ask you this. Know. Let's say hypothetically uh, that Victor gets in one of those programs and, in fact, uh, does participate successfully and gets the kind of job that you're talking about. There's still going to be somebody working at Burger King. There's still going to be somebody pumping gas. Uh, it won't be Victor. Uh, he'll have a better job. I'll be happy for him. But there's going to be somebody else in that job making a salary. And so you're still kind of making the argument that that person 
has to live on whatever they come out of uh, 25, uh, 25 or 30 hours a week at 870 or, or whatever it is, uh, that they've got to live on that, even though somebody else got that other job. Well, if you're talking about what, who traditionally performed those jobs in the past, they were the teenagers. You know, they're the 15-year-old, 16-year-old, 17-year-old, 18-year-old. There were people who had a part-time job while they were in high school or a part-time job in, in um, college. And then people had, you know, developed skills. We had a lot more technical training programs uh, that people got involved in early on. Right now, our youth unemployment in Connecticut is in the mid to high 20s. So there's lots of opportunities. You've got kids all over the place saying, we can't find jobs, we can't find jobs. So it's not that there's not going to be anybody filling those jobs. There's a real need for jobs for our youth right now as well. We're just saying that um, increasing the man- minimum wage is not its not the answer. It's not going to take care of all the problems. What we really need to do is to make sure, and we are big on education at CBIA, our members need people with the skills to enter the workforce. And if instead you're making you know, every retail job, a high-paying job, we're never going to have the people to really be in the core industries that support Connecticut's economy, like our manufacturers. So we're really looking to make this discussion far broader than, you know, who's earning the minimum wage and why we should just increase it, as opposed to having it be, let's expand the skills and expand opportunities for the youth in terms of those that are trying to enter the workforce. We'd like it to be a starting wage. And then, again, get the people the skills they need to enter a career, whether it be in manufacturing, construction, anything else. Not everyone has to go to college. And as somebody just pointed out before I got on, I was listening. You have a lot of people out there with college degrees that are competing for um, positions where there more people with the degrees than, than the jobs exist. We have the opposite in the skilled area right now. We don't have enough people to fill the jobs that are out there. Thanks so much, Bonnie Stewart from CBIA. i got to take a break. Real quick, a response to that, uh, Jim Stotter, uh, and then we'll one, jump into a break. One um, misimpression uh, that um, the previous speaker may have or may give is that when she says that the uh, minimum wage just keeps ratcheting up, yeah, in nominal terms, but when you adjust for inflation, at its height in 1968 in current dollars, it was almost $11 an hour today. If it had, if it had risen at uh, the rate of inflation, that's what it would be today. So 1010 isn't even getting all the way up there. If it had actually grown at the level of labor productivity, how, how much more workers are producing in terms of profits for their companies, it would be almost $20 an hour. So it's not a high wage. And compared to um, most advanced industrial countries that have minimum wages, we're very, very low. All right. We're going to grab a quick break here. We've got a lot more ground to cover and hardly any time to do it in when we get back. How about a maximum wage? Why does nobody ever talk about that? Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our intern is Anna Novak. Katie Talarski is our executive producer, and Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jonah Hill. For articles, show pages, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff trying to make the Angry Whopper sandwich meal, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, a Noel Coward play sparks a conversation on the past, present, and future of the closet. And now, back to Colin. 
I wish we had a lot more time, but we do have some time. And, Victor, you could tell them how to make the Angry Whopper a sandwich meal. Um, you know, just quickly, before we get to our next guest, Victor Burgos, a uh, minimum wage worker at Burger King, um, you were listening to Bonnie Stewart from CBIA talk about uh, uh, that bright future. I'm sure you'd like to have that bright future, too, that training, that job. But I also assume that right now you are making minimum wage, uh, and you think it needs to be more than it is. Yes. Because as of right now, we make a minimum wage. And if I wanted to go to school to try to follow my um, education, mm. who going to pay my bills? Exactly. Uh, that's part of the problem. All right. So one of the things that we talk about and we've talked about today is the potential ripple effect of raising the minimum wage. In other words, if the minimum wage goes up, uh, does it in fact, does the rising tide lift, in, lift all boats? Is there any reason to suppose that? All right. So um, – Jim, is that a t- Jim Stoddard's? A, by the way, I should reintroduce our guest, Krista Alessandro, is a voiceover uh, talent with an MBA. She works various jobs, including one for minimum wage. Jim Stoddard, a professor who teaches economics at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. So, is is there a reason? Is there a basis, a statistical model, or something we can look at and say, yeah, that'll happen? In other words, if Victor starts making ten ten, somebody further up the line, or Chris starts making ten ten an hour, somebody further up the line will get bumped up somehow. Sure. I mean, there, it's. I think it's. There's good empirical evidence of that. Um, and like I said, this, the CBO report, which again, a number of uh, very conservative economists have referenced for some of its findings, but they don't, they don't represent the whole of the report, um, you know, show that, uh, that about uh, half as many people are raised up by the minimum wage, but who, are, but who start out uh, above it as people who are, um, they, they reckon that if you're making up to about eleven fifty an hour um, that you would be you would get some positive effect and there's a there's a general redistribution this this is another point that I think hardly ever gets made. People that are against this on principle always talk about the uh, the job effects and the job effects are something to worry about, but I think they don't uh, oftentimes say part of the reason that they're against it is it's a redistributive program. It, it winds up, and again, the CBO uh, report gives some numbers on that, and basically the bottom 75% of the uh, income distribution benefits from the rise, e- even, even people that are you know, very close to the top quarter. Above that, in general, they lose because the, um, the, the higher uh, prices effect will, will wipe out you know, for them, they're not getting those low wages to begin with, but also um, cut into profits to some extent. Um, you know, there's a, a sort of a psychological concept that kind of looks at that, looks at that whole question uh, of how people make decisions uh, about anything uh, and what kinds of benchmarks they use for that. Uh, one of the terms for that is anchoring. Uh, here to talk about uh, that is Barry Schwartz, a psychology professor at Swarthmore College. He recently wrote about this in Slate.com. So, Barry Schwartz, tell us about uh, the concept of anchoring and how it would affect the minimum wage debate. Sure. Well, the general concept is if you go into a store and you see a suit, let's say you're, in the, you're shopping for a suit, you see a suit for $1,200, uh, and then you look at a suit for $600, and the question is, is that a lot of money to spend on a suit? The fact that you just looked at a suit that's $1,200 is going to make you think that a $600 suit is reasonable. Uh, even random numbers thrown out at us uh, are going to influence the evaluations we make of um, the things we're contemplating buying. Real estate agents who insist that they're completely unaffected by the list price of houses because they know the market so well, 
it turns out, are dramatically affected by the list price of houses. Uh, in general, we grab onto any numerical um, value we can find and then use that as an anchor and adjust from that anchor to make a decision about how uh, valuable something else is. So the point that I made in the slate piece is that raising the minimum wage will have effects for people who are working for the minimum wage, but it will also have effects that go significantly above that in the uh, income distribution, because if, if the minimum wage is seven and a quarter, then making $10 an hour is pretty good. If the minimum wage is 10, then making 10 isn't pretty good anymore. And so what's going to happen, I think, is a bumping up of wages all along the, the bottom of the uh, wage distribution, and that will probably have a major impact on the number of people who make it into the middle class. So, and, and it's inter interesting, you know, the studies that you cited in the article, it does almost in, uh, indicate an, an unconscious bias towards this. It, that, that it's completely unconscious. As I say, these real estate agents who have a lot of experience and know the market insist that when they're making a judgment about what a house will sell for, they're looking at the location, the condition of the house, the size of the house, and so on, and the asking price is just irrelevant, and they're wrong. The asking price has a big impact on the estimate they make. It's quite unconscious, it, and even experts are affected by anchors, people who really, in some sense, ought to know better. Uh, so it seems to me quite plausible that uh, minimum wage increase would trickle up. All right. Uh, this is uh, a, substantially. This is a great point. Uh, we're going to have to end that conversation. In fact, we're going to. I'm going to have to sort of begin thanking everybody. Jim, did you have a quick point you wanted to make, or uh, in about um, thirty seconds? I. Uh, let, let me come back to you, if, if possible. All right. So, well, uh, first of all, I just want to say thanks to everybody who called up. And I'm really sorry. There's a bunch of you sitting on hold right now that I can't get to. Pat, Mary, Brian, David. I just can't open a whole, whole new can of worms. I've only got 60 seconds left. I do want to thank all the people who did participate today. That was Jim Stotter, professor who teaches economics at Rensselaer Polytechnic. Chris D'Alessandro, voiceover talent. She's got an MBA, but she's also, you know, like a lot of people out there, holding a lot of different jobs, including one for minimum wage. Victor Burgos is a minimum wage worker at Burger King. I predict that that will not be the case the next time I see you, Victor. <laughs> Big things are going to happen, whether it's one of those CBIA programs or something else. Meanwhile, I'd love to see you making a little bit more money to help support the beautiful daughter who's fallen asleep in your lap there, <laughs> Isabella, who's been a very well-behaved guest on this show today. Uh, and uh, thanks to uh, everybody who helped out on the show, especially Betsy Kaplan, who, as usual, has pulled this thing together for us. We'll be back tomorrow with a conversation based a little bit on the Hartford Stage Company play uh, about life in the closet and the decisions that people still have to make as they decide uh, how to share their sexuality, their sexual orientation with the rest of the world. Hey, Greg? Yeah, Kion Wolf? Um, I wanted to know if you maybe wanted to have dinner with me sometime. I make minimum wage, so we would share ramen. No, I'll pass, but thanks. But I saved an extra flavor packet for you.